Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Now, I say for the millionth time that I never know how long my sermons are going to last. And often when I say I think this is short, it's really not any shorter than normal. There is a lot packed into this message, and it's one, it's, it's probably, these things are hard to quantify. I'm probably more excited about this message than anything I've done in this series so far. Doesn't mean you'll like it better, just means I'm more excited about it, because it really gets into the heart of uh, the motives, our motives, for flowing in the gifts of the Spirit. We are in the middle of a series on the Holy Spirit. I say middle, and again, I don't know exactly how close we are to the middle of it, but we are in the midst of a series on the Holy Spirit that started on Pentecost Sunday with a message about Pentecost. Then we had a message on tongues, and we had a message on the Trinity, the person of the Holy Spirit. We had a message on the power to be witnesses, about divine guidance. And last week, we finally dove into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul starts to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. You remember that Corinth, the church he's writing to, in this case for at least the second time, even though it's 1 Corinthians, Corinth was a significant city, very, I mean, very modern, an important city, and the church in Corinth was immature, carnal, and charismatic. They had a lot of growing up to do, uh, but they had no lack of the presence of the gifts of the Spirit in their midst. And Paul, observing that, and, and not just observing, you understand there was correspondence going, people telling Paul what was going on there. He sent Timothy to report back to him. And what you had going on there, and the picture that merges quite clearly, by the way, if you read, and I gave you this homework two weeks in a row, did you read chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians? What you had was a sort of a chaotic atmosphere. There was a lot of confusion. The gifts were taking place, but nobody was really being edified by them. And so Paul is stressing in this passage that the church is the body of Christ. And he actually compares it to a human body. And that the members of this body need to be working in harmony so that the body grows together, functions as it's supposed to, just like we need all of the parts of our body to, func to function completely and perfectly as we're supposed to, so we need each other. And so we need each other to operate in the gifts in such a way that all of us profit or are benefited or edified, built up, any way you want to put it. It's weird. It's kind of funny uh, when you use the word profit, as, as Paul does here, P-R-O-F-I-T. Number one, it's, I think we clearly understand he's not talking about money in this case, but you're also talking about prophecy and prophets, the gift of the prophets in some of the same passage. And so you say the word profit, and maybe sometimes it's P-R-O-P-H-E-T in your mind. But for the profit of all just simply means for the good of all. And he also tells us, uh, he actually lists in this passage where he's emphasizing all this, he lists the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at them again. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences in ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Then the discourse on the body. This is when he starts talking about the, you know, he's just the, the diversities of these gifts. And he distributes them as he wills. It's for the good of all. And he starts thinking, this shouldn't strike us as strange because even though your body is one body, look how different your fingers are from your eyes, your ears from your toes, etc. And yet everything works together. Every part is necessary. Then he wraps it up. Well, what he says is to eagerly desire the best gifts. And I maintain, I repeat quickly, that um, the best gift is the one that is needed at that moment in time. I personally am persuaded, I, re, I so far remain persuaded, that if you have the gift, uh, if you operate in the gift of the word of wisdom, or if you operate in the gift of prophecy, or tongues, or interpretation of tongues, that doesn't mean that is your gift, that is who you are. I am the tongues guy. I am the prophecy guy. It simply means that you were willing and sensitive to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to be used in that gift at that moment for the good of the assembly that day. Okay? Then he wraps up chapter 12 this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. Yet, and yet, I show you a more excellent way. Now, I pointed out last week, this is not a ranking of gifts. And also, I pointed out, and you've seen, that he's, he's throwing in here, even though he's talking in the prior verses about the gifts of the Spirit, those nine gifts, he also throws in the ministry gifts, which appear in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. He, the point he's making is that God calls us and uses us in a variety of ways according to his will, according to his perfect knowledge about what is best, and he does this for Christ's glory and for our profit or for our good. So the wind-up is right here. Not wind-up as in finishing it up, but the wind-up as in here comes the pitch. This is what he says. Look, you're all part of the body, so whatever gift you operate in needs to benefit the whole body. The gifts are not for your glory. The gifts do not demonstrate your spiritual maturity. And let me interrupt myself again, because last week I made that statement that if you're looking to gauge somebody or measure somebody or if you want to judge somebody's spiritual maturity, uh, you don't do that by saying, well, they must be spiritually mature because uh, they, they spoke in tongues last week or they prophesied last week. The operation of the gifts are not an indication of spiritual maturity, right? Because they're gifts of God. 
At the same time, I should have emphasized this. If you are spiritually mature, you should be flowing in the gifts. The gifts aren't just for spiritual toddlers. All I'm saying is spiritual toddlers can operate in the gifts. This is not a perfect example, but you know, you can look at a person and gauge, you know, some people are really good at this. You know, some people do it, you know, carnivals and circuses. I guess your age, uh, just by looking at you or after a brief conversation. But you can tell if somebody's in the uh, one to five range versus if they're in the uh, 50 to 60 range. Well, which one's older? You know right off the bat by physical appearance. All right? Uh, with, with, there are obviously exceptions because there are problems. But adults, I have noticed, are larger than babies. Have you seen this? Adults, 30-year-olds, are typically, overwhelmingly typically, larger than 5-year-olds. Anybody disagree with that? But how many of you also know that growing up in terms of age, growing up in terms of physical stature, does not automatically equal maturity? Or intelligence, for that matter. I mean, the pattern should be that as I grow physically, I also grow in my intelligence. I also become more socially adept. And I advance spiritually. You know, this is the pattern Jesus gave us, right? He grew in what? In wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, and in favor with man. He grew, he grew in, in his intelligence. He grew physically. He grew spiritually. And he grew socially. He matured evenly. And that's a good model for us. But just because somebody is 30 years old doesn't mean they have the wisdom or the maturity that a 30-year-old should have. And we've all known precocious children who seem mature and intelligent beyond their years. But a spiritually mature person, as part of that maturity package, should absolutely be contributing to the service by operating as God leads you in the spiritual gifts. It's all I'm saying, and all I meant to say last week was, just because you operate in the gifts, that doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. It's the Holy Spirit who is working it through you, and all you've got to do is be willing. I will. Somebody may have to remind me, because I don't think I put this in my notes. I just thought about it this morning when I was going over them. I will talk about, well, if the gifts are so powerful and so important, why would God ever entrust them to immature believers? I have a good answer to that question. I'm just not going into it today. So, uh, yeah, so physical maturity doesn't equal maturity in any other area, uh, ipso facto anyway. And again, that's on the list of things that you can't judge spiritual maturity by. I mentioned the gifts. What I mean by what I just said is, well, they must be more mature because they've been a Christian longer than I have. Uh, he's been a Christian for 20 years. He must be a super Christian by now. And I always think of Keith Green as the argument to that. You know, the guy didn't get saved until he was 21, and he was dead by the time he was 28. And by the time he died, he had leaps and bounds in terms of his dedication, his commitment, his focus on the things of the Lord and the things that he accomplished for the Lord. But anyway, it's enough, that's a far enough down that rabbit trail. 
Uh, all that to say the gifts of the Spirit are just that. They're gifts, they're not accomplishments. He distributes them as he will, and he will use those who are willing to be used, and we are imperfect vessels. But we should be striving all that time, all this time, for spiritual maturity, and the Corinthians were not. They were happy, remaining carnal, uh, even allowing sin to run rampant in the church, but church services were still exciting because we got the gifts of the Spirit in operation. Remember, it's about God's glory. It's about His will. One gift is not more important than another. The best gift is the one that's needed at this time and place. And he says, yet I show you a more excellent way. And then we get chapter 13. We're going to read some of it before I make a comment. I just wanted you to see this context. We'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Let me remind you, by the way. I say he wraps up chapter 12 this way and then starts chapter 13. Remember, 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 he's not writing in chapters. Those divisions were added many, many, many years later just so we could do this, so it's easier for you to find it. So I don't have to say, hey, open up Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and find that part where it says this. No, we divide it up into chapters just to make ease of reference for us. This is all one continuous thought. Here's these gifts. They're important, but you're messing it up this way. Uh, you need to think about what's good for the body. You need to think about what the best gives right now. Ow! Here's a better way. Then dives in this way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sound, a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Right off the bat, let me tell you what people have been led to believe over the years in the simplest terms. You guys are fighting over which gifts are best, and it's leading to chaos, confusion, even schisms, divisions in the body. But you know what's better than the gifts? Love. That's what and the gifts aren't going to last anyway, so let's just forget about them and love one another. Now, that's putting it in simplistic terms, but that is exactly what millions of Christians are hearing from the pulpit. That's their interpretation of what I just read you. This is, uh, you know this term, most of you do. This is the cessationist point of view, which is the view that, yes, we read the Bible, we read about the day of Pentecost, we read the book of Acts, we read about these gifts that Paul just wrote about. And so we say, if we believe the Bible, which 
most Christians at least claim to do, even if they haven't read it, they'll say, yeah, since those are listed in there, since they're referred to, we know they happened. But Paul himself said the gifts are going to be done away with. And it's clearly happened by now. Yes, it used to happen. It doesn't happen anymore. The gifts are not for today. And for those who believe that way, this section that we are in the middle of is the all-time champion of proof texts. And there's more to it. I was listening, by the way, uh, just yesterday to an interview. I don't know when this wasn't a live interview, but I was listening to it on a podcast with Dr. J.P. Moreland. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that name. Uh, he is a uh, distinguished professor of philosophy at Talbot Theological Seminary and has been for many, many years. And he is one of the heavyweights. He is one of the top-tier Christian apologists. Uh, I mean, one of the very few, just a handful of guys that I'm familiar with anyway that, that, that you would talk about in the same sentence as a William Lane Craig uh, or uh, Alvin Plantinga or somebody else, these guys who really know their stuff. He's got the bona fides. He's got the scholarly uh, uh, gravitas, okay? But only recently, I mean within the last two decades, has he also been a charismatic believer because he started digging into some texts and some historical work and then reading the book of Acts and these letters through those lenses. And now he is a full-on, we should be seeing miracles every day in our lives, we should be healing the sick, casting out demons, all the stuff they did back then. And it's really something. Uh, but he, uh, because he's a research scholar. This is what he specializes in. He's done the debate scene. Uh, he famously defeated a, a high-ranking atheist in a debate this many, many years ago before he was a charismatic believer. But he's done all this hard work. He's done all this, this heavy lifting. But he considers his specialty to be a research scholarship. I mean, he pours through these articles. He, he communicates with people, other scholars. And his research, he says, there is no question that the cessationist view among Christianity is rapidly shrinking. He says, now that doesn't mean that churches are becoming, that they're embracing the gifts. It's simply saying doctrinally that view is becoming harder and harder to defend and maintain. You cannot honestly read the scriptures and come to the cessationist position. So, I mentioned that last week because uh, there are many, many churches, many more than there used to be, who if you read their doctrinal statement or if you press them on the issue and ask, do we believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today? Well, we do believe they happen, but they don't embrace them and they don't encourage them. Why? Because the same thing happens today as happened in Corinth. They can get messy. When immature, imperfect people are allowed to operate in the gifts, some people are going to get their nose out of joint. And that's one thing that's super important to walk in love toward one another so that we don't give offense and so that we don't take offense. We need to cut each other some slack Man, it's so easy to point out how somebody messed up and how that bothers you. But it's so hard to see how you mess up and how it bothers other people. So we've got to walk in love. But we don't get points in heaven when we stand before Christ in judgment. He's not going to give us points for being doctrinally correct. He's going to say, well, if you believe that, why didn't you do it? 
If you believe the gifts were for today, why did they never happen in your church? And this is where teachers and pastors are really going to be held accountable. I really do. I agree. The main thing is to trust in the finished work of Christ for salvation. Preach his gospel. But I think I've been, in my own view, and even from the pulpit, I've probably been too soft, too lenient uh, on those who do not embrace the very real activity of the Holy Spirit today. I believe what I have closed every service with in this, uh, some version of it uh, in, this, in this series, that the gifts of the Spirit are so necessary to the church as are miracles, uh, the message of faith, the authority of the believer, that it's tragic and frankly harmful for any minister to be teaching his or her congregation or audience that they are gone or even of secondary importance. Meanwhile, this is not at all what Paul is saying. Again, remember the context. He just explained what the gifts are for, and he explained the importance of, seeking, of seeing each gift as valuable in its proper place, and that we should seek the best gift. Then he launches into this discourse on love as a way to do that. That's what this love chapter is all about. It is not, because as, if you've read ahead, you know the next chapter, chapter 14, focuses a lot on tongues and prophecy. But it's when he talks about praying in tongues versus uh, public utterances in tongues. We'll get there eventually. And he, just talk, he had just talked about the gifts of the Spirit. But it's not like, okay, I said all these hard things about the gifts of the Spirit, the body of Christ, it's important. Let me interrupt myself and remind you, yeah, the gifts are important, but nowhere near as important as love. Remember, even if the gifts disappear, even if you don't do the gifts, that's okay as long as you're loving. Okay, but now let's get back on the gifts and talk about tongues. That's not what he's doing at all. He's saying the gifts are important. That's why God gave them to you. You can't be the church that God called you to be without the gifts, but you're doing it wrong. You are fighting over who has the best gift. You're trying to be, you're, 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 remember we talked about this uh, ridiculous picture of competitive tongues. Oh, you prophesied, listen to my tongue. I'll, pro, I'll, I'll speak in tongues louder. And they're all doing it at the same time. Everybody's trying to show off. And nobody's getting uh, fed. Nobody's hearing one another. No, the, the church is not profiting by these gifts. So Paul says, what's your motive? When you get up to deliver a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, when you get up to flow and healing, is it about, look at me? Because really check yourself, it's hard. It is hard. Now, I'm going to share a story, and I do this, I'm treading very, very carefully, but this is from a long time ago, but it was at Living Word. Uh, and I can remember names, but I'm not going to share them, I can just tell you categorically, the person I'm talking about has not been here for many, many years. And this isn't an insult. It's an observation. I can look back in those early days of, of Living Word, when we were even when we were over in the gymnasium, and you could say that we were a lot less reserved. And I understand in, in, uh, in some respects, a congregation is a reflection of its pastor, and I'm by nature a little more reserved. Uh, and, and sometimes I, I need to remind myself I've got to loosen up and make sure that you guys know it's okay to be a charismatic church. But at the same time, I remember, I look at, there, there was a little, maybe a little bit of, uh, of Corinth. There was this excitement among a lot of believers, but, uh, you know, a lot of zeal, but nowhere near the knowledge that we have now. Many of you, several of you anyway, have been with us through this whole journey or most of that journey. 
And how many of you would say, I've grown in knowledge a lot since then? You better have. This is a teaching church. So there was excitement because we were seeing things and experiencing things that we had never seen or experienced before. And God was behind that. He lets us, he gives us these gifts for our benefit, and he knows that we are going to do it imperfectly. We just read that. We prophesy in part, in part okay? We're not going to do it perfectly, but it still caused us to grow. But sometimes in that excitement, you know, for instance, thank God we never got here. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the story about Living Word in just a minute, but I've told you this before. Many of you remembered, or maybe you were part of a church that did it. Uh, what, one of the things that Jesus said we would do in addition to healing the sick is cast out devils. Devils are still real. Casting out demons is still real. But there were some people who got such a focus on that, got so out of balance, that every service turned into a deliverance service. To the point, and I'm not making this up, many of you know this as well as I do, they would hand out buckets to every person who came into the congregation in case during their deliverance from a demon they had to vomit. That's excessive. That's out of balance. Now, in this case, this was nowhere near as dramatic. But I can remember uh, Larry Millis, founding pastor of Living Word Family Church, and my dad, had uh, a word uh, for somebody to be healed. Somebody was up there to be prayed for, and dad just was led by the Spirit to identify a member of the congregation. Uh, if I remember, I don't remember exact, exactly how this went down. Or maybe this member came up and says, I've, that's what it was. That's what it was. This member of the congregation came down and said, shaking. I've got this burning sensation in the palms of my hands, and I know I'm supposed to lay my hands on this person. So they gave some, some oil, you know, the, the following the scripture, anoint them with oil. So we had a little, little jar of oil. She dipped her fingers in it, and she laid hands on this person, and this person was instantly, manifestly healed of whatever this affliction was. I don't remember what it was. But I mean, this, per, this, this, I mean, it was a super exciting moment, an obvious, miraculous healing. And uh, the person who, who God used to minister that healing was just shaken because they had never operated in, in that, in that uh, capacity before. Now, fast forward a couple weeks, and it's time to lay hands on the sick. And our understanding then was, we know this person has been granted or endowed with the gift of healing. We don't know what your gift is, but we know what this person's gift is. They've got the gift of healing. So every time it's time to pray for the sick, come on down here. And I know I'm not the only person who noticed this because I've talked about it with other people. It was just a matter of a week or two when it was time to call them down there. They walk, And I'm doing the they thing because I'm not even trying to let you know if it was a man or a woman. It was a swagger. Yep, time for me to get up there and heal the sick with my gift. And even as, as a teenager, I was not a much, I had a lot of zeal and very little knowledge, but even as a teenager, that grieved me to see. And that gift stopped manifesting in such abundance. This is the danger of that. When it's time for you to flow in that gift, you've got to be very, very careful that you are not stealing the glory from God. 
This has never been about you. You should rejoice in the privilege of being used by God in any capacity. But this isn't about lifting you up, it's about lifting him up. And this is what Paul is saying. If you are going to operate in a gift, stop right there. Are you parading yourself? Are you puffed up? Are you seeking your own? Everything he's saying about love, he's saying it in the context of why are you flowing in this gift? How are you flowing in this gift? Who is it benefiting? We can go through every one of those things he says and tie it exactly and perfectly to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their operation in the church. Now, he's saying, as wonderful and valuable as the gifts are, if it's, if it's not love for the brethren that's motivating me, then they're a waste of time, or maybe even worse. And it's the same thing for every other way we live our lives as Christians. Look at what he's saying. Have all knowledge. You see, he's, there's a little bit of hyperbole here. If I have all knowledge and always I understand all mysteries, if I give my body to be burned, how can you give your body to be burned and still have a selfish motive? Is he saying that's possible? It is. Is it, is it likely? Maybe not. But I imagine there's some who are like, I just want to go out in a literal blaze of glory so people will remember what a hero I am and what a martyr I am. Now, there's, again, there's obvious hyperbole there because uh, I don't think he's, he's suggesting that any one of us is going to walk in all prophecy, all wisdom, all understanding, perfect knowledge. Uh, and this will be the last rabbit I chase today before I wrap it up with what I actually have in my notes. Uh, and it's a minor thing. I certainly don't want to get into a... Uh, I, don't, I won't even take a doctrinal stand on it. I'm just making you aware here. When, it taught, when he says, though I speak with tongues of men and angels, uh, some people have taken that to mean uh, that when we speak in tongues, it's tongues of men is our language, tongues of angels is our prayer language. Uh, I've even heard the very specific teaching, you, many of you have too, that uh, it is. The, the, it's not an earthly language. It may have been on the day of Pentecost, but today it's tongues of angels because the important thing about tongues is the devil can't understand our language. He can't interfere with our prayers because he has no idea what we're praying. I think that is a huge stretch. I think it's a huge departure from Scripture. And I'll tell you why. Number one, because when tongues originally manifested, it clearly was earthly languages. Uh, maybe somebody ought to write a book called The Devil Speaks Chinese. All right? He can understand any earthly language. Not only that, if our doctrine is correct, devil, demons, what are they? They're fallen angels. They probably still speak that language too. They know it. No, the value of tongues, and we'll get into this probably not next week, but the weekend. Well, not next week for sure because Joe will be here. The next time I'm in the pulpit, probably continue along this line. But when we get into chapter 14, I'll talk about this more. Probably the, the huge... Uh, advantage of praying in tongues is that we don't understand what we're praying. 
God might reveal it to us as we're praying. But we can't mess it up with our thoughts because it's not generated in our brain, it's generated in our spirit. So we're praying perfectly. We yield our tongue to the Holy Spirit. We'll get into more of that. But uh, I can remember somebody on a call-in program, they were talking about proofs of God's existence, and this woman got on there and says, I have absolute proof that God exists. If someone will follow uh, the instructions in the book of Acts and be baptized, uh, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they'll begin speaking in the mother tongue of the new Jerusalem. Like, where'd that come from? It's tongues, not just a tongue. There are varieties of tongues, right? Anyway, this isn't a message about tongues. Let's nail this down. Uh, let's pick it back up in, in, in verse 8, still in chapter 13. We'll repeat some of this. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, perfect or complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, he does tell us right here, that those gifts will stop at some point. The reason the cessationists use this as their proof text is because when they read that phrase, when that which is perfect has come, that which is imperfect will be done away with. And remember, that which is imperfect, Paul makes clear, is our operation in the gifts. But we won't need those anymore when that which is perfect has come. And they define that which is perfect as the closed canon of Scripture. When we have the whole Bible written and recognized as the Word of God, then we don't need the gifts anymore. Now, I agree. Absolutely. You know me. If you've been here any length of time at all, you know I hold Scripture in high regard. And I will never tolerate consciously anything, any form of worship or any form of teaching that does not recognize the Bible as the ultimate authority when it comes to doctrine. But that Bible tells me that the gifts of the Spirit are necessary and still necessary. Because look, Paul himself defines what when that which is perfect has come means. We read on. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror, dimly. But then, then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. When is then? When that which is perfect has come. When is then? When I'm face to face with Christ. We will not know as we are known until we are in heaven. I agree there will be no tongues and interpretation in heaven. We won't need them anymore. But the word of God lasts forever. When that which is perfect has come means the consummation of the kingdom, not the completion of the, of the canon of scripture. How could it mean that? If we say, oh, well, now we've got the scripture, now the, the canon is closed, so now um, I see Jesus face to face, literally face to face, physically face to face. Now I know him just as well as he knows me. Is that true? 
course it's not. I, I continue to grow in knowledge. I know God knows me perfectly. And thank God I know him better today than I did 10 years ago. But do I know him as he knows me? Not by a mile, brother, sister, you either. Praise the worship team, be making your way up here. I'm about done. The gifts of the Spirit are for our edification. We'll see this word again and again in chapter 14. And when I say they're for our edification, I don't bring a word of prophecy. I don't have a word of healing or, or, or a miracle or anything like that. Those are never for my edification. If God is using me to speak something or perform something, it is for your edification. It is for your profit. And when you stand up to deliver a word, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, word of prophecy, a tongue, an interpretation, any of those nine gifts, it always needs to be for the good of the body. It's never about showing off how spiritual you are. And I'm not going to repeat the stories I've already told, but I have seen some well-known, well-loved ministers, ministers that I respect overall do things and say things that for the life of me, I can only see one purpose in, and that is to make them look like super spiritual ministers. And it excites people, and it evokes their admiration, but it doesn't benefit them. In fact, I would make the opposite case. I think it makes a lot of people say, wow, that's why I love that guy, because I could never be that spiritual. And that's not the goal. Why don't you stand up with me? You've been listening a long time. You've been very, it seems like you've been very attentive. That or you're sleeping very, very politely. Uh, I am excited about this series for a number of reasons. Number one, because I think it's exactly what this congregation needs to hear, including me. I'm preaching to myself every Sunday. What I'm also excited about is the fact that so many of you have let me know that you're excited about this that you're hearing things, in, uh, not, not that I've never said before, not that you've never heard before, but that God is speaking things to you during these services uh, that, that's stirring this excitement and this, and this expectation in you. Uh, we've got a lot of good stuff to get into. His word is so exciting. I urge you again, read ahead. You're never going to get in trouble uh, by reading ahead in this class. And these are the three chapters we're really looking at, 12, 13, and 14. And even if you've all right, well, now we're in 13. I'll just start in 13. Start in 12, because this thought is three chapters long, and it all is woven together, and everything makes sense if we see it in that proper context. And that's all within the context of the whole letter, too, and the letter's in the context of the whole Bible. You use Scripture to interpret Scripture. But it's exciting, and it's not hard if we will just make a lifestyle of reading these things, praying as we read, and letting God speak to us. We'll come to agreement. And the more in agreement we are, the more perfectly we will accomplish the mission as a church that God has called us to accomplish. And what is that mission? The Great Commission. Live the gospel. Preach the gospel. This is what we've been called to do. If our goal was simply to get saved, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and go to heaven, why, not, why doesn't God just take us home as soon as he saves us? He's got work for us to do. Until I come back, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. And it needs to be preached by you. 
We all have a part to play in this. It's, we're talking about nothing more or less than saving the world. This is where the rubber meets the road. I believe 100% that if you're going to live your most satisfied life, your best life, the most rewarding life, the only way to do that is to submit your life to Jesus Christ. He has made us for himself. So apart from him, we're not going to find rest. We're not going to find fulfillment. But it's not just about that. It's not just about getting our fulfillment. It's about eternity. In other words, it's not just about, it's not just about this life. This life uh, is, is what? According to James, it's a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. In the face of what? Compared to what? Eternity. When James says your life is a vapor, it doesn't mean you're going to cease to exist. It simply means this life here while we inhabit these bodies. Sometimes life seems long. Usually when you're young, life seems long. The older you get, the, the, the shorter you realize it is. And that everything we're doing now is laying the foundation. It's an investment into our eternity. We are all going to live forever. I think the Bible makes that pretty clear. Question is, where are we going to live? Are we going to live in the presence of the God who created us for himself, in the environment he created us for, or are we going to live eternally separated from him in an environment that God created for the devil and his angels? There really is a heaven and there really is a hell. And while I respect, as an American and as a human being, I respect anybody's right to believe what they want to believe. That doesn't mean I respect what they believe. I respect your right, I guess, to believe that 2 plus 2 is 5. But 2 plus 2 isn't 5, it's 4. I should have used an English example. I always get nervous when I use math examples because math wasn't my, wasn't my topic. No, man, I can love a person who, uh, who worships a different God. But I'm not going to say they're right. Well, don't we all just worship the same God in different ways? No. Please spare yourself embarrassment. Uh, and don't say stuff like that. If anybody who says all religions are the same, what they've just said, you might as well say it with a megaphone, is, I know nothing about these religions. Because they don't say the same thing. I'm slipping into apologist mode, but I've said this to youth and other people for, for a couple of decades now. Mathematically, here I go math again, logically, it is possible that everybody is wrong. It is utterly impossible for everybody to be right. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Talk about drawing a line in the sand. And oh, I just get so excited and my heart is just so full of love for God when I, when I see uh, what he has left us in his word. It's not, it doesn't read like any other religious text, not by a long shot, it's different. And what I see in there is a perfect description of me. 
the claims that the Bible makes about mankind in general, I see myself in those. Oh, wow. Yeah, he nailed me. Oh, he nailed me again. And because I see that he describes me perfectly, I know he's described himself perfectly. And what he says is this in a nutshell. And this is just cutting to the, to the chase here because this is the part of the service we're at. You were born a sinner. You inherited that sin nature from your first father, Adam. And it's been passed down through the blood for millennia now. And because of that sin, no matter how bad a person or how good a person you are, judging by social standards, because I know people who are better than me. I know people who are worse than me. You talk about something, you know, so, oh, that's a good guy. But are you willing to look at anybody and say, that's a perfect man? That's a perfect woman? There's a person who, indeed, there is no sin? No, that person doesn't exist. And there's the problem. The very presence of sin creates a huge gap between man and God because God is perfect, God is holy, and he says, I can't abide sin in my presence. All sin has to be judged, it has to be purged. That means death. That's how serious our sin is. So we're all born under a death sentence. And the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ is that God says, but I love you, and I'm not willing that you should perish. Perish is what you have coming. Death is what you have coming. I'm not willing to do that. But being a just and perfect God, he can't say, so forget it. Sin's not that big a deal. He says, no, I'm, I still have to judge your sin. But instead of judging you, I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take your guilt. I'm going to take that sentence, and I'm going to lay it on Jesus the Son, God the Son, and I'm going to pour my judgment out on him. And if you will just humbly come to the cross and say, thank you, Lord, I needed that because I couldn't save myself. You are the Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe that God has raised you from the dead, and I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. That is salvation. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10, 9. So I'm going to issue that invitation. I want you, if that's a decision you need to make today, if that's a decision you need to make because you haven't made it yet, I need you, I beg you to make that decision today. Don't wait another day. Well, what will happen after that? First things first. If you recognize that that's a need, that that's something you lack, that relationship with God as Father, let's start there and then trust God to take you to the next step. The other thing is this. If you are a believer, Scott, I knew all that. I knew Jesus went to the cross, and I knew I needed the cross, and that's why I accepted him as my Savior all those years ago. But you're not walking in the power you're not operating in the gifts. Go back to that very first sermon we preached in this, in this series. They're all available online. And ask yourself this. Is I, have I ever asked for and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? This is what Jesus said to saved followers of his. I've trained you for three and a half years. I love you and I've given you a clear mission. Go and do this. And one of the very last things he said before he ascended into heaven was, all that stuff I told you to do, don't do it yet. Stay here until you receive power. For when the Holy Spirit has come, you will be endued with power to be my witnesses. You cannot do what he told you to do without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you desire to be saved this morning, if you desire to be born again, become a Christian, anything you want to call it, if you want to commit your life to Christ, surrender your life to Christ, I want you to come up here as soon as I'm done praying. 
If you desire to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, I want you to come up here as soon as we're done praying. And I'm not going to linger, meaning I'm not going to labor over you in prayer for minutes. and minutes. It'll take seconds. I'm just going to lead you in a simple prayer of confession and salvation or simply say, receive the Holy Spirit. Because God is not up there saying, I don't want to give this to you, so you better pray hard and long. He's like, I'm ready to give this to you. Just reach out. So let me pray this with it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus and his blood that was shed for us. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice watching online, in this room, in the lobby, who does not know you as Lord and Savior, does not know you, Lord, as Father, does not know Jesus as Savior, uh, that you would convict them and convince them by your Holy Spirit right now in this place of their need for you. Let them see themselves as you see them and let them see their need as you see their need and grant them the humility, the wisdom, and the boldness to come and receive that free gift of salvation today and now. I pray also, Lord, for every believer, every brother and sister in this room who knows you, has been saved by you, but has not been walking in the power that you promised, that they would humble themselves and come and eagerly receive the power that you promised when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit today. Thank you, Lord, for doing what only you can do. We pray that you are glorified and blessed at this moment, at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and sing. Come up here and let me pray for you if either one of those applies to you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.